Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to this uh, first outspoken event for 2017. Thank you very much for coming out tonight to, to hear us. My name is Stephen Lang. I'm a co-director of Outspoken with Chris Francis. And uh, we've got a fantastic evening here tonight with Malachi Talak. Before we start tonight's proceedings, uh, I think it's appropriate that we take a moment to respectfully acknowledge the Jinnaburra people as traditional owners of the land on which we've gathered. They're the keepers of the ancient stories of this place. I'd like also to acknowledge those ongoing efforts to protect and promote Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander culture and the creation of a legacy for future elders and leaders and a better, more tolerant Australia. Gosh, it sounds strange saying that in the present political climate, doesn't it? But there we go. We, we do believe it to be possible, you know? Malachi Katalik is from the Shetland Isles, as far north in Scotland as you can go, and he attracted a fair bit of attention with his first book, which was called 60 Degrees North, uh, and which was an account of his journey following the 60th parallel uh, around the top of the globe, as it were. Uh, gosh, we're being very, very, um, uh, I suppose, geographical, sort of limited by there by saying the top of the globe. It could have been the bottom, depending on which way you look at it, couldn't it, really? Um, anyway, uh, it was a book that Robert McFarlane described as both brave and beautiful and was chosen by BBC Radio 4 as the book of the week. He's in Australia um, visiting the Adelaide Writers' Festival and the Perth Writers' Festival to promote his new book, Undiscovered Islands, a study on islands of the imagination, of deception, and of human error. Malachi is a well-known singer-songwriter with four albums to his name, and you can see we've got a guitar up here on the stage, and we're, we're threatening to play a song towards the end after the questions tonight. So look, please welcome Malachi Talak to Millennium. So Malachi, perhaps we could begin at the beginning, your... 17 years old, you've contracted some sort of illness, a, a flu, you've got a fever, and you're lying in bed in the Shetland Isles. You stand up and go to the window, and you've had a kind of vision about the 60th parallel. Is, is, that, is that right? Something like that, yes. I mean, the, if you live in, in Shetland, then, then the 60th parallel is is a kind of presence, it's, it's a phrase, 60 degrees north is a phrase that people use a lot in Shetland. And I think it's about trying to connect ourselves with other, with more exotic places, I suppose. If you, if you grow up in Shetland, you're, you're used to the islands being consigned to a box on the corner of the, the map of the British Isles. And so by, by speaking about our latitude, it, it connects us to, to different places, places like Greenland and Alaska. But at that time, um, I had just come back to Shetland recently. I, I grew up in Shetland from about the age of, of nine. But I had, I had moved down to live with my father when I was 16, and he, he died very suddenly in a car crash. And I was then forced to go back to Shetland to, to where my mother was living. And so I had sort of lost direction in life. I suppose I didn't know what I was doing, what I wanted to do. 
And, and, and at that time you describe, which is, which is where the book begins, I guess I was lost and I was looking, looking for somewhere different, looking for, looking for a new direction, looking for somewhere to aim towards. And, and that day when I was ill and I looked out the window, I did suddenly have this, this thought about the parallel, about this line that goes around the world. And the thought basically was, I wonder what's there. I mean, I, I, I knew that some of the other places that lay along that line, I knew that it connected us to, to Bergen in Norway, and I knew that it connected us in the other direction to the southern part of Greenland. But what does that actually mean? What does it mean to be connected by this line? What does it mean to be at that latitude? And so it, it was at that age that I started asking those questions of myself. It took, it took me a long time before I actually set out on, on the journeys that, that are part of this book. But, but the question began then, I guess. Uh, look, we, we kind of skipped past a rather major event there, though, because you were actually, as I understand it, were, were standing on the edge of a loch or something, fishing. I mean, well, it wouldn't be a loch, because it's a lake, because you were in Sussex. Mm. When, the, when this happened, when your father... What, do, can you talk about that a little bit? Yes, yeah, so I, I went to live with him. Um, I, I got a place at a performing arts school to, to study music when I was 16. And he lived in Kent, in the south of England. So I went, I went to live with him. And then a week before the school college was supposed to begin, he, he dropped me off to go fishing one morning, and he didn't come back. And I suppose that part of the things that have concerned me in my writing ever since have been... That's one of the things that, that has shaped those, those concerns, I guess. The, the, there's an idea, there's a questions about what is, what is lost and, and what is missing. And, uh, and, and the way the things, when they don't come back, when your father didn't come back, he, he's never going to come back. It's not, there's nothing you can do about it. There's, when other disasters happen in life, you can somehow or other mitigate them or rerun them or change them like that. But when somebody dies, well, that's the end of it. Yeah, and it's, it's a young age, I suppose, to be confronted <coughs> By, by something quite like that. I think, I think perhaps lots of, of writers have something in their childhood, some, some sense of, of loss or of something missing. Writing is often not exactly about filling a hole, but, but you create something because you feel an absence of something. Yeah. Look, I don't mean to keep on on this subject. I'll, I'll let it go, but, but I just wondered one thing, because there was that kind of practical thing for me as a reader when I came to that point. I'm just thinking what I was like as a 16-year-old boy. Just the practicality of, of, you know, somebody doesn't come to pick you up. What, do you, what, what did you actually do? What was going on at that point? Hmm. 
So yeah, this was 1997, so it was kind of pre-mobile phones, which made um, things more complicated. And I, um, I just had to find my way to somewhere where I could start trying to work out what had happened, um, where I could start phoning people, and I, and I ended up phoning hospitals and, and phoning the police, and um, so the police came and, and found me um, once I once I had got in touch with them, they knew what was happening, and they came and, and got me. So yeah, it's. I mean, I can. This is 20 years on. I can I can speak about it in a fairly relaxed way. But it was obviously a very traumatic mm. event at, at at the time, and I suppose I never felt like a child again after that. So. In the, in the book here, one of the things that you're talking about is, I mean, I think the title, the subtitle is Around the World in Search of Home. Mm -hmm. And you have this kind of uh, poetic conceit that you bring in at the beginning of the book that as soon as you started traveling around the circle, you were always <clears throat> coming back to where you started. There was always this idea that the journey was always home. And I guess that, that that's kind of poetic, but it's also that you had quite an ambivalent relationship with the Shetlands. The Shetlands weren't really home to you at that point, were they? Or Yeah, we, we, we moved to Shetland when I, was, when I was nine years old, and up to that point I'd had a very, um, I felt a very happy childhood in the south of England, and we moved to a place that was utterly different, utterly different in just about every way, I suppose. And if you move to Scotland as a child and you have an English accent, then that, that's not always the easiest. Um, Try coming to Australia. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I didn't, I didn't feel particularly welcomed and Shetland <clears throat> didn't feel like home. For a long time it didn't feel like home and for those first few years my, my father was, was still back where we had left. So I, I had this sense of, of longing for another place, this feeling that home was, was somewhere else that I wanted to get back to. And that's a feeling that has stayed with me to some extent, but has obviously changed and developed over the years. But, you know, when you, when you write a book, as you're, you're finishing it and you're, you're tying it all together, you're making everything feel neat and, and, and well packaged and well thought out. But when you start out a book, it, it's often not like that at all. You don't, you, you just start writing and you don't always know what you're doing. And so in hindsight, it seems obvious that when I set off around the parallel, my ultimate destination was home, inevitably. It was about coming back to Shetland. But when I began writing, I wasn't thinking about that at all. It was something that became obvious as I went along. It became clear that, that home was the destination, but it was also the subject of the book. And mm. um, um, what are, for those of us who've never been, I've, never, I've been to Orkney, but I've never been to the Shetlands. What, what are the Shetlands like? So, it's about 200 miles north of, of Aberdeen. It's an overnight ferry trip. 
And there's about 20,000 people who live in Shetland. And it's, it, I mean, it's obviously fairly sparsely populated. The main island is about 50 to 60 miles long, but it's pretty narrow. You're never more than three miles from the sea in Shetland. And it's quite wild in winter. It's not especially cold. It doesn't, I mean, it gets down to zero, but we don't get lots of snow or anything like that, but we get a lot of wind. And winter is dark. We, we just get a few hours of sunlight in the winter, but of course, in the summer, the sun hardly sets at all. But the landscape is, it's not flat, but it's not mountainous. It's a sort of hilly, heathery landscape. And often the, the coasts are quite dramatic, with, with cliffs and, and sandy beaches. And it's, so it's a, it's a very beautiful place, but it's, it's a kind of beauty that doesn't appeal to everyone, I suppose. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, I, I, I kind of compare it to the Orkneys in my mind, because, but they're very grassy, they've been, they've mm -hmm. been very well cultivated, but all throughout Orkney, there's these remains of the Vikings, and the culture before the Vikings. Yeah. You've got Scara Bray, which goes back to three and a half thousand years BC, is that Something right? like that, yeah. Five thousand years ago, mm -hmm. is that really right? Yeah, I think it might be, okay. Um, Chatham was populated about six thousand years ago, so that would be, that would okay. be right. And, and so are there, are there remnants like that in Shetland too? I yes, we, we don't, um, we don't have such dramatic um, once of that age, we have later um, architectural, uh, uh, later um, buildings from about 2,000 years ago that are still quite intact. But yeah, people ca first came about 6,000 years ago. And it's, it's understandable in a sense because you can, from the far north of Scotland, you can see Orkney. And from the far north of Orkney, you can see Fair Isle. And from Fair Isle, you can see Shetland. So in a sense, it was inevitable that there would be people who would take that risk <coughs> and who would keep going, looking for new places. And it, I mean, one of the things about the north of Scotland and those areas is that Calvinism really took root very, very solidly there. Is, did, did that happen in Shetland? I mean, is it a very religious place? No, it's, it's not. And it, it, it's a funny thing, I mean, people, People, often, people will sometimes say, oh, I haven't been to Shetland, but I've been to the Western Isles. Now, the Western Isles is utterly different culturally from Shetland. It's different um, in, in the Western Isles, they speak Gaelic, which has no history in Shetland. The, the native language of Shetland died out in the very early 18th century. It was uh, Norn, it was a, a, an old Norse language but also that kind of very, very conservative religious culture that you get in the Western Isles when nothing opens on a, on a Sunday. That's, that's not Shetland at all. My, my brother-in-law tells a very uh, good story about being in the Western Isles and he's a, he's a member of the Kirk where he lives in the Highlands anyway, so he went along to the service in the, in the Kirk and you have to understand these, these wee Kirks in the, in, in the 
Western Isles things. They're just very small buildings, all painted white inside with um, very upright wooden pews in them. And he sat. There, he and my sister sat at the back of um, back of the, the church there and listened to the service, which was conducted entirely in Gaelic the whole way through. And at the end of at the end of the service, that the minister said. It went for about an hour and a half, including the sermon, I should say, in Gaelic. And at the end of the, the service, the, the, the minister said, how oh, can now we see that we have a couple of people from the mainland here? And they probably didn't get all that. So I think we should do it again in English. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, I, I visited Lewis and Harris for the first time last year, actually. And it, it, you're right, they're, they're these small, austere churches with huge car parks. And <laughs> religion is a big thing in the Western Isles. Anyway, so, so listen, you, you set off on your journey around the globe, and um, uh, I was wondering, one of, just a, a kind of curious question that came to me while I was reading was, how, how did you fund this? I mean, how did you, did you have a sponsor? Did you go to home hardware and say, look, you know? <laughs> No, I, I didn't, and I didn't have a publisher as I was writing. So I, I funded it myself, which meant that it took quite a long time to do the traveling. I did it over a period of four or five years. Um, the, the overseas travel I did in, in four separate trips. So I went to Greenland one spring, and I went to North America the following summer. I went to Russia the following autumn, and then in the winter, I went to the Nordic countries. And that was partly just because I wanted to get each of the seasons in the book. I mean, <laughs> traveling around at that parallel and just going in summer is, is really cheating. So I, I, I wanted to get that, that year-round feel. But also, it, it was about funding it. I, I had to save up to to pay for each bit of the journey. And uh, look, one of the things I, I like most about the book is, is these kind of little um, diversions you take. Every time you get somewhere, there's this little kind of diversion, which is also a bit of a dissertation on the culture and the, and the, the place that you've come to. And when you get to Greenland, you're sitting there in a, um, having dinner with a couple, if I remember rightly, and they, they ask you, you know, do you have any seals in Shetland? Um, and you say, yes, of course, we've got seals in Shetland. They say, well, do you eat them? And, and, and you say, no, we don't. Hmm. Yeah, that was an odd one for me, and it was something that I had never considered. I mean, Shetland, for a very long time, was an extreme, like most rural parts of Scotland, was an, an extremely poor society. I mean, people were living on the edge of, of starvation a lot of the time. Um, they, they were having to pay a lot of the fish that they caught would, would go in rent to the, to the laird. So they had very little, but people didn't eat seals. Now, they did occasionally kill seals for, to make shoes, but they didn't eat them. And so that, when I went home, I, I started asking people about, about why this was, and nobody had a very good answer. But I, I think it's probably to do with the fact, as, as some of you I'm sure will know, seals play a, a very strong part in, in the mythology of the, the northwest coast of Scotland and Ireland and the Northern Isles. Um, you have this, the stories of the Selkies. 
Um, and these were seals that became people. They would remove, they would come up onto the beach and they would remove their skins. And occasionally they would be caught in this state. And you have lots of stories of female, particularly um, seals, removing their skins and then a man finding it and stealing the skin and hiding it and marrying the, the woman. And he would have to keep that skin hidden for the rest of, of her life. And these are, these are very common stories all across that kind of um, Atlantic coast. And I, I wonder whether that is, is part of it. That's part of why seals weren't eaten, because they were too close to people in some ways. And that, that wasn't an issue in Greenland. In Greenland, they had a very, very different attitude. Um, seals were... Seals had souls, like all living creatures, um, for the Inuit. But that didn't mean you couldn't eat them. As long as you respected the animal, as long as you gave thanks for the life that you took, you, you could eat it. And, and they, in fact, they're quite kind of scathing of Westerners who come along and say, well, you shouldn't be doing that. Absolutely, yeah, and particularly when it, I mean, whale, whaling is, is a big question. The, I mean, the Inuit are allowed to kill a certain number of whales, I think. Um, and they know what most of the world thinks about that, and they think that most of the rest of the world are absolute hypocrites because our culture poisons the oceans and destroys the climate and causes enormous environmental damage. And yet we have this squeamishness about individual life that, that they find completely baffling and, and annoying actually. They hate being lectured to about sustainability by <laughs> Europeans and Americans. Perhaps for some, perhaps for some reason. But Absolutely, the, the, yeah. I mean, I, I, I confess I didn't know a lot about Greenland's history. In fact, if I'm going to be really honest in front of an audience of people, I can say that I actually somehow had merged or morphed Iceland and Greenland together in my mind. I didn't, I kind of, it was only when I read your book that I realized that, that I, I was kind of, there were two completely different cultures. And it's you've very got, connected history, but... You, you've got this, you've got this movement from the west of the Vikings into Greenland, and you've got this movement from the east of the Inuit, yeah? Yeah, England, um, Greenland has a very... It's quite a, f a fascinating history, actually. That there's been all kinds of people have kind of come and gone through Greenland for one reason or another. Numerous Arctic cultures have been there for thousands of years and then have left again or have died out for one reason or another. The, the Vikings got there in about 800 AD. And when they got there, there was no Inuit. The Inuit had not yet arrived in Greenland. There was another group of people in the far north, and the, the Vikings knew that there should be people because they found remnants of their settlements, and they found tools and things, but they didn't see any people for quite a, a while. 
And eventually, the Inuit, within about 100 years, probably, within 200 years, the, the Inuit arrived. They, they were sort of traveling, migrating from Alaska across the Arctic, and they arrived in Greenland. And there was this tense relationship, I suppose, between the Vikings and, and the Inuit. The Vikings were fairly afraid of the Inuit, but the, the Inuit needed the iron that the Vikings had. They, they wanted that. So they had this kind of trading relationship. But what the Inuit were good at was adapting, and their culture was supremely well adapted to the place that they were living in, whereas the Vikings were farming. They, they were farming in Greenland, and so when the medieval warm period ended and the climate cooled down by several degrees quite reasonably quickly, they couldn't farm anymore and they didn't learn quick enough from the Inuit to survive. So the Vikings completely died out. Um, and it wasn't until another hundred, this was about in the 13th, 14th century, the Vikings died out. And it was another 200 years or so before the, the Danes arrived and recolonized Greenland. Gosh, okay. So it's a, it's a very odd history. We think of the Scandinavians are the colonizers of, of Greenland, but they arrived there before the colonized. <laughs> it's, and, and that is interesting, actually. It's... It, it's a point that I suppose I explore in other places too, about what, what does this mean? What is it about the Scandinavians that makes them the colonizing culture? And it is a, the fact that they came with a culture. They tried to impose their culture on the place, whereas the Inuit arrived with a culture that was born from the Arctic. And, and that's, that's the big difference there. That's why we can, we can make that distinction. And the Inuit have quite a, a philosophical... I mean, they have, I mean, everyone has their own philosophical bent, but the Inuit have quite an interesting one because they don't seem to have a concept of God in the way that the Western societies might have. They have this idea of sila, Is that, which seems to me more to do with uh, rather than any kind of paternalistic um, supreme being. It's more about the fluidity of life or something? Is that... Is yeah, that... it is. That, that's a, an important part of, of their natural, traditional natural philosophy, I suppose. I mean, the, the Inuit these days, uh, it's, Christianity is, is quite um, strong in, in that population now. But Sila was, was all kinds of things. Sila was spirit and soul and breath and weather and spirit. It was everything that was kind of outside and it was a very changeable thing. It was the kind of flow of life, I suppose. And it, and it seemed to me when I was there that, well, I, I was struck by the way that these kinds of natural philosophies are, are, are born from the places in which they emerge. And, and that idea of the constant changeability, transience, is inevitably a part of, of life in Greenland, where things are constantly changing. The weather is constantly changing. And, and 
life is, is very, very fragile in, in the Arctic. Um, you're always just one wrong step away from, from death. Um, and, and so that, that was a very interesting concept for me, Sila, and, and, it, and it made me kind of think more about that idea of, 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 how, of how myths and stories and philosophies rise from the landscape, in a sense. Hmm. I mean, there's a lot in there in terms of Australian Aboriginal mythology as well, because it seems to concur a lot with what they're talking. I don't know enough about it to, to say this, but it seems to me there's, there's concurrences there. Moving on, though, next place we go to is Canada. And you're going... Canada is one of those interesting countries where the vast majority of the land, of the actual landmass of Canada, is north of the 60th parallel. Is that right? But the, I, the vast majority of the population lives south of it. It's, the land is about equally divided, north and south. And in fact, if, if you look at a map of Canada, Canada is about the only place apart from Shetland that really talks about 60 degrees north because 60 degrees north for most of the way across the country marks the border between the northern territories and the southern provinces. So it's there on the map so people know about it. So it is about equally divided, but in terms of the population, there is only 100,000 people live in the Northern Territories, north of 60 degrees. And how many people live south of it? Uh, does anyone remember the population of Canada? <laughs> 35 million? So, yeah. Okay, so <laughs> almost everybody yeah. lives south of 60, and most Canadians have never been that far north. So it's, it's this huge part of their country that they know nothing about, really. And is it being exploited? I mean, is it, is, are those vast reserve landscape that's almost unpopulated, is that all being, is that where, excuse me, my geography again here, I should have looked at this on a map, but where's, where's the um, tar sands in Alberta? Is that on the, so that's, the, the that's, tar sands is just about, it's, it's just south of 60 degrees, but it's, it's actually very close to the, to the parallel. Um, Traditionally, the North has always been a place that wasn't considered a home. It was considered by, by Europeans and by the Europeans who went to North America. The North was a place where you went to get the natural resources, and the wealth came back south again. So very early on, the, the Vikings and other Europeans were getting narwhal tusks in, in the Arctic and they were taking them back to Europe. And these were worth far more than, than gold, narwhal tusks. And you have whalers going north to get that kind of wealth, people going to get gold. In Canada, people going to get furs. And now you have mining, you have the oil, and you still have gold to some extent in the north. So there's always been this idea of the north as a place for southerners to get rich and to come back south again. And that, that still remains, I think. That's, that's still there in, in Canada. And, and in Greenland, too. I mean, mining is a big issue in, in Greenland. Rare earth mines, um, there are now quite a lot of those in Greenland. 
and there are big debates about the mining of uranium in, in Greenland, which has been banned, but there is, there is huge pressure for that to change. So that was spring, if I remember rightly, that, yes. you, that, 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 you're, in, that you're in Canada. And then you go to Alaska. Summer in Canada and, and Alaska. Yeah. Summer in Alaska. Yeah. And uh, in Alaska, you're really getting into the kind of wilds of the arboreal forest, yeah? Yeah, I mean, for, for somebody who comes from a small island with no trees, Alaska is um, a very alien place in, indeed, and a, quite an overwhelming landscape. I mean, if, if any of you have, have been there, you will know it's this immense landscape, huge mountains, huge forests, everything is, is enormous and everything is, is a bit frightening. And uh, look, I was going to get you to read a bit just to give people a flavor of 60 Degrees North. I wondered, and, and you, you had a, a kind of little a walk through the, the forests in Alaska. Yeah. Would you like to read that, that for us? So, I, yeah, I was talking about fear there, and um, I'm going to read a piece about fear. That was, that was one of the emotions that really uh, struck me when I, was, when I was there, and I think it was partly born out of this sense of intimidate, being intimidated by the landscape, but this is about the moment when it became most acute. And it's when I was walking, I was intending to go fishing, and I went to walk to this lake, and I had to walk through a forest to get there. As I took those first steps on the trail and into the forest, the fear rose quickly in my throat. Moving between thick, new-growth trees with visibility down almost to zero, I could feel my heart beat harder. My fear was complicated and confusing, but as I walked, the thump in my chest found its focus in one simple word, bear. <laughs> with fishing rod, tackle bag, and waders in my hand, I felt clumsy and vulnerable, and I stopped almost immediately to rearrange my luggage. The pair of waders was flung over my shoulder together with the bag. In one hand, I held the fishing rod, and in the other, I gripped my fingers around a canister of bear spray just inside my jacket pocket. I checked that I could remove it easily and quickly. I set my index finger inside the looped safety catch. I focused my eyes and ears on the forest. Pepper spray is pretty much the last resort when faced with a brown bear. Ineffective at a distance of more than a few meters, it's useful only when you're being charged. And if you're being charged by an animal that can be more than eight feet tall when standing, 600 kilos in weight, and which can run as fast as a horse, it's important that the spray is successful. <laughs> if it's not, your only possible chance of escape is to play dead and hope the bear loses interest. If you're lucky, it might paw you for a moment, perhaps breaking your limbs in the process. If you're not lucky, you won't have to pretend to be dead for very long. <laughs> the best way to avoid such an attack, I was told, other than to remain indoors at all times, is to be noisy. Bears become angry when they're surprised or threatened, and as a rule, they'll stay away from people given the opportunity. Many hikers wear a bell to alert animals to their approach. Others simply shout or sing as they go. Somehow it feels odd to confront your fears in this way, to let the danger know you're coming. 
I wanted to sneak through the trees unnoticed as well as unscathed, but I followed the advice I'd been given and I tried to sing. As the trail rose into old growth forest and the sound of the highway was lost behind me, I could feel the presence of the bear like a ghost among the trees. The space was haunted by it, as was I. Beneath the canopy of leaves, a whole array of spirits seemed to dwell. Invisible insects clouded my face and birds moved unseen above. Even the trees themselves were somehow not unmoved by my steps. The singing didn't last for long. Somehow no words felt right and the sound of my voice was alien and intrusive. My mouth became dry and useless and I took instead to humming both random tunes and familiar melodies, some of them ludicrously out of place and yet still strangely comforting. I imagined myself from the outside, a man alone walking fearfully through an Alaskan forest laden with fishing tackle humming Mr. Tambourine Man as loudly as he could manage. Surely a bear would be more likely to laugh than to attack. After 10 minutes or so of hiking, something made me pause and turn my head. I stood still and listened. My breath was loud and my heart thumping. But another sound too broke the forest silence. A rhythmic pounding like feet or paws running in my direction. I turned to where the noise came from and looked out among the trees. It can have been a few seconds only between hearing the animal and seeing it coming towards me, but in that brief time I'd imagined in detail what was to come. The beat of my pulse had fallen in time with the thud of the four approaching feet. The spray had been lifted from my pocket and gripped tightly around the top. I'd steadied myself in anticipation and in regret. And then, there it was. Clearly, Sa- cl- clearly a man who knows the power of the hook, you know. <laughs> Sadly, all the copies at the back have sold out, but you can, uh, <laughs> you can order some if you want to know how that story ends. So look, um, after Alaska, then we, you recount a time that you spent in Kamchatka as a younger man, and then we in St. Petersburg, and then Sweden and Norway, and eventually we're back home again. And, I mean, I don't mean to kind of shoot across half the globe, but... but We've I'm, only got I'm, an hour, so... But I'm, I'm also kind of keen to talk about Undiscovered Islands, which, which is a, a, fascinating, a fascinating dissertation on, uh, I suppose, the human need to, to create things for different reasons that might not necessarily be there. I suppose, look, I'd, actually, I'd rather you, if you wouldn't mind just kind of introducing the book a, a little bit, perhaps, yeah? Hmm. So, yeah, in the first book I was writing about real places and how those places make us feel and the kind of cultures and stories that are there. And in this new book, I'm still talking about stories of places, but these are places that don't exist. The book began 
as I was writing the previous one, I, I wrote about two of, of these islands. And I decided that it was an idea that I wanted to expand. These are all <laughs> islands that at one time or another were believed to be real, but now are not. So it begins with mythical islands, which existed all over the world. Cultures that lived beside the sea would inevitably have islands in their myths. If you look out towards an ocean horizon, you imagine other places beyond that horizon. And, and, and people all around the world have had those kinds of myths, and particularly stories about islands that kind of cross the line between life and death. So the Isles of the Blessed, which was imagined by the Greeks, is kind of the proto-European idea of a, a kind of paradise on earth. This was where the chosen few went to when they died. But the book then moves on to other islands, most of which are mistakes made by sailors, and there were all kinds of reasons for that. Sometimes it was optical illusions, sometimes it was navigational mistakes, but these islands started to appear on maps, and then eventually they would have to disappear again. But there are also fakes. There were people who wanted fame and fortune and decided to invent islands and to try and convince other people that they were real. And sometimes it was very hard to prove otherwise, to prove that they were wrong. And that's one of the interesting things I suppose I, I found while I was writing it, realized when I was writing it. It's much easier to discover an island than it is to undiscover it. You only have to see it once. In the Middle Ages, when people were exploring the world, an island, piece of land only had to be seen once before it would appear on a map. But it had to be unseen many times before it would disappear from the map again. And if you actually found an island that you, I mean, if, you, if your sponsor, if you were failing in your project and you wanted to look after your sponsor, you would imagine an island and then name it after him was a really, was a really good way to, to go. Exactly, yeah. And one of the, one of the examples I, I have in the book is um, of this group of islands in, in Lake Superior, which were invented by a priest who was an explorer, and he invented these islands, and he named them after a rich politician back in France, where he'd come from. And those islands appeared on the map, and not only did they appear on the map, but when the United States became a country, they appeared as part of the border of the United States. In the Paris Treaty, which is the birth of the United States, one of these islands that does not exist is, is there in the treaty. So the, these are not all kind of insignificant places. Some of them intervened in history in, in very odd, surprising ways. I, I, mean, I mean, when you say that thing about un, it's very hard to undiscover them, but there's also that thing about maritime safety, that if somebody has actually said they saw an island, mm -hmm. then they put it on, it's on the map because nobody wants to run into it. Exactly, yeah. I mean, cartography, it's partly about knowledge and about science, but it's also about safety for, for mariners. 
that they didn't want to be running into things that they weren't expecting. So cartographers were quite wary of removing islands from the map, just in case they were real. So some of these islands would stay put and they would have the letters ED attached to them, which meant existence doubtful. <laughs> so they were pretty sure that they weren't there, but they'd, they were just hedging their bets. And, and it's quite clear as you read the book, though, that you were having quite a lot of fun writing it. Because, mm. I mean, there's a point where you get to the island of Atlantis, which, of course, has to... This, but you, you, I mean, a book like this wouldn't be complete without Lemuria and, and Atlantis. And, and saying of Atlantis, uh, there was this rather nice comment that you made that if you want to explore the astonishing limits of human credulity, searching online for websites referring to Atlantis is a good place to start. <laughs> It is incredible what people believe about Atlantis. I mean, it's become kind of caught up in this conspiracy theory culture. And just about anything you want to believe about Atlantis, you can find evidence for it online. And part of me was resistant to putting Atlantis in the book for that reason. There's been so much written about it. And I, I almost didn't want it to be there, but as you say, it, it kind of had to be. I mean, it, Atlantis was invented by Plato, and if you read Plato, it seems fairly obvious that it's invented as an, an allegory. It's, it's a story he's, he's trying to tell, and he's using this imagined island to, to make a point. But somehow, in the 19th century, it became all of these other things. And yeah, I mean, it, it's just madness. It's complete madness. I thought the story of Lemuria was, was I'm not going to contest this. I'd just like you to know that I'm not going to contest your thesis on Atlantis at this point. <laughs> but um, we'll save that till after a couple of bottles of wine tonight. But, um, Lemuria is very interesting too because Lemuria seemed to come into existence because of the missing link in evolutionary theory. Yeah, so it, Lemuria is another sunken land in the, in the Indian Ocean. Oh, sorry, yes, I, I've jumped ahead here, of course, because this thing is that if, you, if there was an island discovered and then somebody went to look for it, couldn't find it, it was assumed the island had sunk. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, sailors were taken very seriously, or good sailors were taken very seriously. So if they said there was an island and nobody could find it, the assumption was that something had happened to the island rather than the sailors were wrong. So they, it was often attributed to being, them having sunk in some way. And of course, some islands do sink in certain places of the world, in parts of the Pacific, in, around Iceland, Islands sink for geological reasons. And, and now for climatic reasons. Um, but Lemuria was an odd one because it, it, it was one where science and myth came together. So a, a biologist in the 19th century wondered why you had similar kinds of animals in India and in uh, Madagascar. And the best reason that he could come up with was that there had been this land that joined the two that had since 
sunk. Now we now know that what happened was that the the plates moved moved apart. The the continents are moving around, but they didn't know that then. And so he he had this theory about the sunken continent, and it fitted strangely well with myths of the Tamil people in India who believed that they had come from this sunken continent in the Indian Ocean. And those two things joined together, and the same mad people who believed in Atlantis believed in Lemuria and came up with all kinds of theories about this, this odd, odd idea about root races, which got caught up with, with very unpleasant um, racial theories about racial superiority um, and that Lemuria was the birthplace of, of Europeans, of, of the superior races. So it's, there were some horrible elements to this, to this tale. But it had quite a long life, that one. Um, like Atlantis, there are still many people who think that Lemuria, Lemuria was real. And uh, d just on that note of some sunken islands that sink, you know, and, and this thing, there was that, there's an island that you bring up towards the end of the book where, which was, somebody thought that the Americans might have actually blown it up with nuclear testing. Is that, is that right? I mean, yeah. when, when the island, when they really couldn't find the island and they were really pissed off at, but it's the Chileans, is it? Who, who? The Mexicans. Sorry, okay, you better, yeah. you, better, you better tell the story. Hold on, I'm getting myself confused. So, for, for obvious reasons, most of these islands were undiscovered by the 20th century. Um, the, this astonishing fact that the, the British Admiralty removed 123 islands from their maps in 1875 that didn't exist. Um, and they, they had to put three of them back because it turned out that they did exist. <laughs> so 120 were not real. But there were islands that continued into the 20th century. They, they continued to be shown on maps and usually they were in places like the Antarctic, where not many people, not many ships went, so it was harder to know what was real and what was not real. But the island of Bamea, eight years ago, there were, these, there were discussions between Mexico and the United States about space in the middle of the, the Gulf of Mexico, which they called the donut holes. Now, this is areas that lie outside the international waters of both countries, but they wanted to divide them up between them because there is oil in that region and they wanted to decide who owned what. And so the Mexicans were very keen to push their border as far as possible um, out into the, into the Gulf. And there was an island called Bamea which appeared on many of, of their maps in the Gulf, and it was the furthest out of the Mexican islands, but nobody could find it. And there was, people didn't know what to make of this. And there were all kinds of, again, conspiracy theories grew up about what had happened about Bamea. And a lot of people thought that the Americans had destroyed it. The CIA had bombed this island in order to steal Mexico's oil. But in fact, all it was was a mistake by one sailor that ended up on a map 
and ended up on the map for a very long time. But, but is it not true that the president of Mexico at the time got into a lot of trouble for losing this island? I mean, the, elect the electorate yeah. really didn't like the idea that this island that Mexico that owned had disappeared. People felt that they were getting a bad deal, and probably <laughs> they were getting a bad deal from the Americans, but they, they wondered whether the president had been paid off in order to deny the existence of, of this island. It's a very strange story, and incredible that it's so, so recent that these, these islands were still, still there. And, and of course, the, the one that kind of triggered me to start researching this is Sandy Island, which famously is between Australia and New Caledonia, which was only undiscovered in 2012. It was on Google Maps and Google Earth, but it, it wasn't there. So, I mean, did, but that brings me to the question, how did you research this? Because there's, there's I mean, where do, you, where do you go? I mean, is there, presumably there's no register of, of, of missing islands that you can kind of go, well, I'll choose this one or that one. Where, where, how do you begin to do something like this? Well, it was great fun in a way because there were so many to, once I started looking, there were huge numbers of them. And there are... There are a few books which have sort of covered some of these islands before, and usually they're, they're books written for map geeks, I suppose. So they will say, well, this island appeared in this place on this map, and it appeared in this place on this map, and then it disappeared. And I found that a little boring. Um, and I wanted to get the stories. I was looking for the ones that had these really interesting, exciting stories. And to be honest, I mean, the internet can be a risky place to do research. You have to check and double check everything. But there's an incredible amount of material there available when you go looking for it. So for instance, one of these islands that I read about was called Sarah Ann in, in the Pacific. And it was one that the Americans had claimed in the 19th century. And I couldn't find very much information about it. But when I started searching, I found a transcript of the diary of the, the daughter of the captain who was on board the ship at the time. She had written a diary every day, and I could read her diary of this voyage, and she mentions this island. And I could also read the diary of the first mate on the ship who doesn't mention this island. And so immediately I could see where the problem <laughs> had a rose, but it was incredible to have access to that information that without the internet, you would have to go all over the world trying to, to find these documents. Hmm. So, look, I'm, I'm looking at the time here. I think we should really go to questions. Do I have anyone who'd like to ask Malachi a question? Um, I'm thinking of Mutiny on the Bounty, the famous film, mm -hmm. which is based on historical events. And Christian Fletcher and co. only escaped with their lives because they came across an undiscovered island, Pitcairn, which nobody else knew about. So when the Admiralty sent out ships to catch these men and hang them from the yardarm, they couldn't find them. So undiscovered islands have their uses. <laughs> yeah, they do. They do. And, I mean, some, some islands were incredibly difficult to re-find, if they'd been seen once, and they were so far away from any other land that it, it didn't take, 
you didn't have to be very far wrong before you missed it completely. So there are islands in the South Atlantic uh, as well that people thought maybe they weren't real, and it, and it took a long time before um, they were... Is it Bovet Island is one in, in the South Atlantic. It was seen once, and it was not seen again for 100 years. It was so difficult to find. And Pitcairn, obviously, is another one where it, it was so difficult so to get to, so remote. Um, you can see the problems that, that sailors had. What sort of travel did you make? How did you travel? Well, because I was paying for it myself, uh, there was a lot of public transport. Um, the, the most difficult place to travel really is, is Greenland because there are no roads between communities, so your choice is boat or helicopter. And I had to do both to get to this um, town called Nanotalik, which is the most southerly um, community of, of any size. Um, in other places, yes, buses, trains. It's, it's a great way to see countries as well, though, use, using public transport. I, I like being on buses and trains because you don't have to... If you're driving, you're having to concentrate on the, the road. If you're being driven, you see a whole lot more, I think. Um, and, I, and I find that I write quite well on, on trains and, and things. So in, in Alaska, I... I had a friend in Anchorage, and he lent me a, his truck for the time that I was there. And it seems right. When you're in, in the U.S., you have to drive. That's, that's the way to see America. But. Um, I was curious whether Italo Calvino's Invisible Cities um, bore any place in the uh, formation of your book on the islands. Um, Simple answer, no. I read, I read it after I had finished the book, and it, it is a fantastic and, and fascinating um, book, but it's, it didn't come... I, I didn't read it first. Maliki. Um, I, one of the reasons I came to hear you is because of your wonderful name, <laughs> Maliki Talik. And I was wondering, Richard's my name, I was wondering, um, is the Talik family an extensive family, historical links, or is it a very small name? Have you got a lot of history to your family name? Okay, um, well, I'm a typical British mongrel. Um, Maliki is an Irish name. My mother's from Belfast. Um, Talak is originally Cornish, but it has variations in other places. So in the north of Scotland, Tullach is a very common name. And I think it is originally Norse. So I, maybe I have Viking blood, and, and maybe I fit into Shetland after all. But Talak's actually not a common name. At all, I've—I don't know if I've met a Talak that I was not part of my immediate family. Maybe your ancestors were there a long time ago. Possibly, yes. Yeah, I hope so. Do 
Maliki, I think it might be time for you to pick up your guitar and mm. just uh, if, 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 you'd, if you'd like to grace us with a song or two. Okay. Um, Maliki's not traveling with a, a guitar, so I borrowed one from a friend, and it's a, it's a big ask for him to play somebody else's, um, somebody else's guitar without even a capo, which he, I, I didn't um, have the decency to supply for him. But uh, here, here he is anyway. Yes, it, it is a, a bad workman who blames his tools, uh, uh, but if anything goes wrong... And I should, just, 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 just before he starts playing, was I, I did say to him that, you know, I understand that you're no longer living in the Shetlands at the moment, you've gone to live in Glasgow. And I said, well, was that because, you know, because you, you get more gigs as a singer-songwriter down in, in Glasgow than in the Shetlands? And he said, no, no, that's not actually the case. I got more up in the Shetlands here. So he actually taken up writing to earn some money, you know. <laughs> It's <laughs> pretty much true. <laughs>
is, it's, not, um, it's not so much the, the guitar that's the problem, it's the, the clammy hands. <laughs> <laughs> I'll do um, one more song, uh, and that was a creeping willow. This one begins with a, a weeping willow. It's not an obsession, it's just a coincidence. <laughs> um, I don't actually have any CDs here. Um, am I allowed to say you can get songs on iTunes? Is that all right? <laughs> yeah. Ba-da-ba-da-ba-da-ba-da 
Thank you.